Well, here we go. The the much-awaited last uh, talk in the the Law and Grace series. Um, it's it's gone down in history as just about the Bible study that took me longer than any other to prepare for various reasons that I won't go into now. Um, now, in fact, at the end of the last one, I said that was the last one, but it wasn't. This is the last one. Okay, so here we have it, the ultimate study in the Law and Grace series. Now, we based it all on Romans 6.14, when Paul says you're not under law, but under grace. And, and in the seven talks odd that have gone before this one, we've seen that very thoroughly, that we are not under law, but under grace. We've seen that we are saved because of a covenant of grace that was effected or ratified by the blood of Jesus. And it was a covenant which depends entirely upon what he alone has done. A covenant of grace. In effect, a completely free gift bestowed upon us simply because God wanted to do that. So salvation is an utterly, totally free gift that God has bequeathed to us. The covenant of grace. We're not under law, we're under grace. And what this last study is about is we've got one more question to answer. And it's quite simply this. So what is grace then? Not what is the covenant of grace, We've seen that, we've done the covenant, we've answered that question, but what we're going to do tonight is going to say, what actually is grace itself? The covenant of grace is the mechanics. That's its outworking. But grace itself is the motivation in God's heart that lay behind it. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. What actually is grace. And what we're going to see is that grace is actually the underlying characteristic of all God's dealings with us. Grace is the basis upon which he conducts a relationship with us. Grace is a fundamental divine attribute Grace is what God is like. Now, go to the Psalms, and, and, and let's just uh, get some, some scriptures on, on this. And, and just going to read verses from um, a list of Psalms. First of all, Psalm 86. To, to get the picture, Psalm 86, and in verse 15, the psalmist says this, but you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God. And then in the second half of the verse, we get an idea of what that's all about. Slow to anger, abounding in love and in faithfulness. Go to Psalm 103. We could, of course, come up with many, many more scriptures tonight than I've actually done. But uh, obviously one's got to draw the line somewhere. But, but these are just uh, a little picky, little dippy, dippy, dippy. 103 and verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. 
And there you've got it again, slow to anger and abounding in love. Go to 111, Psalm 111. And verse 4. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. The next one, Psalm 112, verse 4. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. For the gracious... Oh, no, sorry, I've got the wrong... Sorry, scrub that. Completely wrong verse there. That's talking about um, believers who are, are experiencing the great... No, scrub that verse. Uh, um, 116. Oh, well, we all make mistakes. I, <laughs> my letter of resignation will be on your desk in the morning. <laughs> so 116 and verse 5. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. And then last one in the Psalms, 145 and verse 8. hundred and forty-five and verse 8 the Lord is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and rich in love and I've picked those out so you can see that this is sprinkled all over the Bible one of the things that God words that God's Word is for is to tell us about him about God this is one of the fundamental things that it tells us that he is a gracious person now, into the New Testament, go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, this is sort of like really, you know, the verse that, that, that sums up the basic thing that we're establishing at the moment. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. And, uh, and here, kind of like Peter is, is saying like a, a prayer of praise laws. He says, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. But look at that first thing that he says, and the God of all grace. Can you see that? The God of all grace. Now, one of the foundational verses in the Bible when it comes to understanding the character of God is in the epistle of John when he simply says God is love. Now that is a fundamental uh, foundational aspect of the character of God. God is love. Now on a par with that next to it comes this verse which tells us that God is the God of all grace fundamental to his nature. God is intrinsically full of grace. He is infinitely gracious. It's the warp and the woof of his character. It's a basic and fundamental aspect of the nature and character of God, i.e. the type of person he is. He is full of grace. He is the God of all grace. So then, what is it 
what is grace? Because it's so easy for it to just become a word. And uh, I'm one of those who, before I became a Christian, thought that amazing grace uh, was the fat lady at the circus, <laughs> is it? I mean, you know, grace, it's just a word, isn't it? What does it actually mean? And for us, because it's so common, it's so very common, we use it so much, it's, it's, it's easy to not begin to understand the scope of it and, and to just, you know, sort of like to just bask in it. Because one of the things that I'm hoping from this study is that we can all sort of like go away tonight with that kind of the spiritual equivalent of the ready brick glow. You see, just <laughs> basking in, in, in what we're going to see tonight is, is the nature of the God who has got us in his hands. So what is it, grace? Well, the Greek word in the New Testament, we've just seen Peter say the God of all grace. Now, the Greek word there is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. Um, and before we go any further, let me just say, this is where you get the word charismatic from. I don't know if you've ever wondered that. And the reason that the word charismatic in Christian jargon usually denotes Christians who are baptised with the Spirit and use the gifts of the Spirit, i.e. they're charismatics. The reason um, that, you know, that came about is because in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul says about earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, now, in, in verse 1, when it, you know, he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now, we did this in the spiritual gifts series, but revision here. Um, is that the, the word gifts there doesn't appear in the Greek. Um, the, a literal translation is quite simply now concerning spiritualities. The word gifts isn't there, all right? But when he starts to list them, then he talks about gifts of healing, blah, blah, blah. Now, when you get that word gift, each time introducing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's this word here, charis. And so that is why, you know, sort of it came about that, you know, that Christians who use the gifts of the Spirit were called charismatics or charismaniacs, as, uh, you know, in fact, so many, <laughs> so many are. But that's where it comes from. But it's a bit of a, a misnomer because, of course, at one point, Paul talks about the free gift of God in Christ Jesus, talking about our salvation, and that is charis as well. So technically, every believer is charismatic, regardless of whether they're baptised with the Spirit and speak in tongues or whatever, because if you're saved, if you're in the covenant of grace, you have received the greatest free gift of all, eternal life in Jesus. Charism, all right, a gift, a free gift of God. So that's just an aside there. So, what does it actually mean, charis, this word here, translated <laughs> grace? Um, well, it means undeserved kindness. It denotes a friendly disposition. Now, someone's disposition is what you might call their mood. If someone's in a good mood, their disposition is good. If they're in a bad mood, it's, it's bad. Perhaps Lee could say a bit about this morning, <laughs> later on. No, <laughs> so disposition is kind of mood. It's, it's the vibes, if you like, that that person is putting out. And God's disposition, or charis, is a friendly one. So it's a friendly mood from which flows kindness and the bestowal of favour, all right? The idea being that if you're in a good mood, you're more likely to favour people. But the thing about grace 
is that it's undeserved kindness. And the classic theological way of defining it, or, you know, as sort of like the one that the theologians use, is quite simply unmerited favour. That's the technical meaning of this Greek word charis, unmerited favour. And what it means is this, the disposition that God has towards us, or his mood, or his attitude, or his outlook to you and I, is that of friendliness, kindness, and favour. He favours us. Each one of us, you and I, each one of us are his favourite children. And that is what God's grace is all about. He relates to us as his favourite children. Because his heart, which is full of grace, makes him relate to us in that way. He looks upon us as his favourite children. Now, here's a main point to get about being under grace and not law. And it's this. Law, quite rightly, no one could argue with this, but the law gives you what you deserve. Quite right too. That's what the law is there for. And if God stood only on his holiness and righteousness, if God was a holy God and a righteous God, which he is, but that was all, all right, then that would be the whole story. We'd be under law and we'd get what we deserve because the law gives you what you deserve. That's the point of it. But grace, because God is the God of all grace, Grace gives you precisely what you don't deserve. And that is the whole point. Unmerited favour. And that is why, in Romans 8 verse 1, Paul says that there is therefore now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. Now, think about it. God, in his grace, gives us not what we deserve, or we'd have had it. He gives us precisely what we don't deserve. We deserve condemnation, but we don't get it because of God's grace. Now, think about it. We're not condemned. We're not under the judgment of God in any way. Now, what is the opposite of grace? It's disgrace. It's being in disgrace. That is the opposite of grace. If I stand towards someone in grace, it means they favour me. I'm their favourite. If I stand before someone in disgrace, then I'm persona non gratis, i.e. I'm in their bad books. They'll turn their back on me. They don't particularly want to know me. Now, can you see what we deserve is to be in God's bad books? What we deserve is for God to turn his back on us. What we deserve is to be per persona non gratis with him. But because of his grace, we don't get that. Rather, we get his acceptance and we get his forgiveness. And we're declared not guilty. You and I are entirely innocent in God's eyes because of the death of Jesus. We're justified. Justified, never sinned. Now that is God's grace. He looks upon you and I, not as sinners. He looks upon us 
as his favourite children. Now, here's a way to understand grace. Think of the letters G-R-A-C-E. And it's God's riches at Christ's expense. That ultimately is what grace is all about. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. And if we want to look at what grace turns into, it gives us this. Jesus died so that we could live. That is what the covenant of grace was all about. The innocent dying for the guilty so that the guilty could go free. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, God's riches at Christ's expense. We are his righteousness. Jesus gave up everything, including his position in heaven, including even his fellowship with the Father and, and the Holy Spirit. Because on the cross, for three hours, Jesus was separated from them. He gave up everything in order to share it with us, who deserve absolutely nothing. I.e., he was punished so that we, the guilty, can go free. Now, that is ultimately what grace is all about. It's utter self-denial in action. An utter self-denial in action because of the desire to bestow favour upon others even though they don't deserve it, and we don't. Go to Ephesians. Let's, let's see Paul talking about this. Ephesians, and uh, find chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start reading from verse 3. And look at this. He says... Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There you have it, God's riches at Christ's expense. For he chose us in him before the creation in the world, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now, can you see, there Paul is talking about the covenant of grace. We've been redeemed, been set free from our sins. We don't stand before God as those who are condemned. We stand before God as those who are accepted, those who are his children. And what we've got here is that he talks about this grace of God being lavished upon us. Now, that word lavished in the Greek is very strong. Well, it's strong in English, isn't it? If you lavish something... What you're doing, you are piling it on. Here we have grace upon grace. Um, what we've got here, let's think of it like this. What we've got, you know, lavished. We've got John with the sugar in his drinks. Lavishing it. Or when Belinda makes a chocolate cake, lavish is what she does with the chocolate. 
Do you see what I mean? You've got the idea here of grace being poured on us almost without limit, just being lavished on us in every way. It's the picture of piling it on, oodles and oodles of grace. That is what God is like, all the time pouring his grace upon us, ladling it all over everywhere. And what it means is this, that when sin piles on sin in our lives, then what is God's response to that? Grace piles on grace. That's God's response. Is it condemnation? No, there's no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. When sin piles on sin, then God's grace piles on grace. When failure piles on failure, then God's response is that grace piles on grace. All the time he's lavishing it on us. God's grace is the answer to every situation we ever get into because God's grace is how he responds to us and relates to us in whatever situation we're in. Now, go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And remember, if we run the law, then when sin piles upon sin, judgment would pile upon judgment and we'd have had it. But we're under grace. And God just responds to our sin with his grace and his forgiveness. And in Hebrews 4, and uh, we'll start reading from verse 14. And uh, see what the writer says. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Now here the context is sin. Jesus, our great high priest, the high priest there was to deal with the problem of your sins. All right. So here we're reading a passage that relates to us. We need a great high priest because of the sin in our lives. All right. Now look at verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, or as other versions put it, perhaps a bit better, let us therefore boldly approach the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What time of need? When sin is piling upon sin in our lives, because this is talking about Jesus as our great high priest. And what it's saying here is to approach the throne of grace boldly. Why? To get grace, i.e. to get forgiveness. And uh, here, when it talks about God's throne being the throne of grace, I mean, thrones in the ancient world, but I suppose it's, it's the same today, a throne represents authority. It represents power because it's the ruler who sits on the throne. But the throne of God here is represented not with authority, not power, but grace. And so the Bible's saying, right, you've sinned? Right, boldly go to the Lord, go to the throne of grace, 
and find grace to help in your time of need. Can you see? So the point is, very often, how do we find ourselves responding when we find that sin piling up in our lives? Very often, isn't it, that of we feel condemned? I mean, Adam and Eve, do you remember when they sinned, what did they do? They ran away from God, didn't they? They tried to hide from it. But that was before they were born again. For us, when we sin, we oughtn't run away and hide from God. We ought to run up to him, you know, knowing, fully assured, that he's going to forgive us. Not try and sort us out, not be rotten to us, anything. He won't condemn us. And so can you see any idea of being condemned is just blown out of the window here. Or any feeling of, oh goodness, he can't forgive me again for that. You see, blown out of the window. That's law that runs out of forgiveness. Law gives you what you deserve. Grace gives us precisely what we don't. Or of, uh, you know, any kind of feeling, oh, I've, I've sinned too much. How can I have the nerve to ask God to forgive me again. Well, the reason we can have the nerve is it's part of the contract, the covenant of grace. When we have sinned, when we are feeling, how can I in all honour repent of that? I'm really pushing it. What God is saying to us through his word is, come on, come to me boldly, because I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm not going to let you have it. I mean, yeah, God will sort us out. But remember, he only does that when he's convicting us and we're refusing to repent. But when we come clean, when we confess our sins, when we come up to the throne of grace and we can march in boldly, we don't have to wait to be led in, we don't have to make an appointment, he's our father. And we can go to our father any time. And we can go to that throne of grace and what we're going to get is forgiveness and love and understanding and compassion. We've really got to see that all this condemning ourselves and, and all this kind of, oh goodness, how can I, you know, sort of, how can I expect him to forgive me again? That is demonic rubbish. And also it's a slur on what Jesus did. When Jesus died on the cross, was his blood enough or not? Well, the answer was, it was enough. And so here God says, boldly come to me. When you've sinned, when you've blown it, don't cower, don't feel, oh goodness, how can I? That's precisely the time we need to approach him, to confess that sin and just to receive his grace and his forgiveness. Go to Romans 5. So we really need to understand this, because, I mean, unless we really understand what the Lord is like, how can you relate to someone if you don't really know what they're like? I mean... Sometimes you get people who are kind of, they're a bit schizo, aren't they? Um, and you're never quite sure how they're going to react. Um, now, it's, it's impossible to have a really good relationship with people like that because you don't know where you stand. And, and it's important for us to really know and to understand what God is like. But remember, all the time Satan, he wants to interrupt our relationship with God by putting wrong ideas in our mind about God and preventing us carrying on that relationship from our side. So, when we sin, if Satan can keep us from coming to the Lord in confession, he wants to do that. 
He'll try to harden your heart. He'll say, no, don't repent. Why should you? All right. But if that fails, then what he'll do is, no, you're, you're too sinful. How can you, you know, sort of, how can you honestly expect God to forgive you again? You see? And it's Satan trying to come between us and the Lord. Um, so we've got to make sure that, that, that we know what the Lord is like, that our picture of him is, is right. Um, and in Romans 5 and verse 20, um, the second half of verse 20 and 21, you'll certainly remember these verses from earlier talks, where Paul says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the verse where Paul is saying, and again, I like some of the other translations, it's very hard to get used to a new translation, but where sin abounds, grace does also more abound. Now, this verse was the one we saw that is the very reason that there is the potential for the error of license. Because obviously one can come to this verse and say, oh, here we've got a ticket to sin any time we like, it doesn't matter, all right? That's the error of license. It's kind of taking the mick out of this verse. And that is wrong, completely wrong. But nevertheless, we've got to make sure that in our resistance to the error of license, that we don't actually negate what this verse actually says. And what this verse actually says is, the more sin in your life that you bring to the Lord, the more grace you're going to get from him. So, how can I put it? If you confess a sin that is two on the scale of one to ten, then God's grace will be two on the scale of one to ten. You'll get love, forgiveness, compassion, understanding on a par with that sin. But if you're bringing a number nine, then God's grace, rather than dropping down to one, or you've had it this time, goes up to number nine. Can you see? Or in fact, if you're bringing a sin that's two out of ten, God will give grace that's four out of ten. And if you're bringing a 9 out of 10 sin, he'll respond with 12 out of 10 grace. Can you see? The more sin we bring to him, the more he'll respond with grace. Now, that is not to say, therefore, let's go ahead and sin. Of course not. That's the error of license. But what we must understand is simply this, that whatever sin is in our lives at any time, if we come to the Lord, we're going to get grace to match that sin. In fact, the more sin there is, the more God's response will be of grace to us. This is so important. Because if we get condemned, if we start, you know, screwing ourselves up like that, then we drift away from the Lord, even get frightened of Him, and perfect love casts out fear. I mean, yes, we need the fear of the Lord, but the fear of the Lord isn't you know, like the terror that somebody might have of a dominating father who's going to, you know, sort of like, you know, beat them to within an inch of their lives every time they do wrong. The fear of the Lord is that respect of his authority. But we should never be frightened of him because all he wants to do is to respond to us with grace. Go to James. And um, obviously we'll see these verses in a, a, a lot more detail when we actually move on to... Um, 
you know, the studies that we're going to be doing in James verse by verse. But in James chapter 4, and um, start reading from, from verse 4, and this is writing to believers, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Uh, and then go down to verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, what you've got here is, is that you've got a section in the letter here where James is dishing out quite stern rebuke to Christians who are really out of order. He's writing here and he's, he's referring to Christians who are worldly, you know, sort of like they're friends of the world and to that extent they've become enemies of God and they're being unfaithful to him, blah, blah, blah. So there's real rebuke here. And when we do sin, the Lord will rebuke us to bring us to the point where we put it right. But can you see here in verse 6, it says, but he gives more grace. And this is the thing to understand. Even when there's something in our life that is out of order and when God is convicting us, all right, if we say no, if we kick against him, all right, then we can be assured that precisely because he is a loving father, he won't let us get away with it. He will increase the pressure. The more our rebellion increases, the more God will meet that rebellion with pressure, uh, you know, in order to bring us to put that sin right. But the point is that when he does that, the only reason he wants us to put that sin right is because then he can pour grace on it so it's gone and the whole thing is over. Do you see what I mean? So even when God is chastising us as sons, as it says in Hebrews, even when we're being rebellious about God's convicted us of a sin, we're saying, no, we won't confess it, all right, the Lord will come in with discipline. And that can be hard sometimes. But that's only there to bring us to the point where we put that sin right. And God wants us to put it right because once we have, he pours grace on it. And again, we're restored to favour. Can you see the whole point? It's never that God is out to get us because he wants to give us a thrashing or something. It's purely so he can bring us back into that grace that his heart is absolutely full of towards us. All we have to do is put it right. I mean, there's a sense that every time we sin, we move out of God's grace because our relationship with him goes wrong, out of fellowship. But he wants us to get back into fellowship because once we are, then that grace is just poured over us again. And in fact, even when he disciplines us, again, that's God's grace. Because the only motive that he's got in his heart towards us is because he knows it's going to be better for us and we're going to be happier if we put that sin right, whatever it is. And so we've really got to understand that this is what God is like. He is our Father, and He is also our friend. Do you remember that Jesus said to the disciples in John's Gospel, He said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And also, Jesus said, speaking of what He Himself was going to do, He said, greater love has no man than this, that He lay down His life for His friends. And isn't it lovely to know that when Jesus laid down his life, 
you were already in that covenant of grace. And as far as he was concerned, you were already his friend. Jesus came for his friends. He came for his sheep. He came for his people. And remember the names in the, you know, sort of the whole grace thing, the covenant of grace, the Lamb's book of life, those names were already written out for, from eternity. And Jesus came and he died for his friends. That is what he is like. Our Father and our friend. Whatever we need, whatever is truly for the very best for us. Now often we feel we need this, that or the other. God knows that no, that will be bad for you, you need this. But the point is, whatever is truly the very best for us, then it is God's joy in his grace to grant it to us. And here's the point. God's heart towards us is grace. We have his unmerited favour. Or to put it another way, he adores us. Now that's difficult, you know, but we need to understand that. He adores us for all our sin, for all our warts, but the sin was dealt with when Jesus died on the cross. He adores us. Um, do you remember years ago, when I was a kid years ago, there was a cartoon and uh, it, it was a cat and a, a mice. Uh, it wasn't Tom and Jerry, it was one years before that, but the kind of catchphrase was, I'll, I'll love those meeses to pieces. Do you remember that? Was it Top Cat? I can't remember which one it was. But that's the point. He loves us to pieces. He absolutely loves us to bits. That is what the Lord thinks of us. And we need to understand that. Now, what I want to do is, 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 is now to show you something in the New Testament. If you go initially to Romans, and uh, I'm just going to... We're actually going to have a quick look at every epistle that Paul wrote in the New Testament. It won't take as long as you think. I want to show you something that is tremendously significant. We're going to do each one. So we start with Romans. Now find Romans chapter 1. And uh, find verse 7, and in the second part of verse 7, this is Paul opening his letter to them, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now go to the last chapter of Romans. Find chapter 16. Find verse 20, which is Paul starting to end the letter. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now turn the page, 1 Corinthians, chapter 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now go to the last chapter of Corinthians, chapter 16. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Turn the page, 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then find the last chapter, 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
Turn the page, Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, Galatians chapter 6, the last chapter, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Turn the page, Ephesians 1, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now find chapter 6, the last chapter of Ephesians. Verse 23. No, verse 24. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Turn the page, Philippians 1, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, the last chapter of Philippians. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Colossians, chapter 1. Second half of verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Chapter 4, last chapter. The last four words in verse 18, grace be with you. 1 Thessalonians. Um... Verse 1, grace and peace to you. Chapter 5, last chapter, last verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, chapter 3. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 1 Timothy. Verse 2, chapter 1, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus. Chapter 5, no, yes, chapter 6, in fact. Last verse, grace be with you. 2 Timothy, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, last few words, grace be with you. Titus, chapter 1, verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Chapter 3. Grace be with you all. And then lastly, Philemon. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, I think it's fair to say that in the New Testament... The letters of Paul, more than anything else, sum up the Christian life from beginning to end. Paul laid out the, the doctrine of the Christian life and also how to live it. So Paul's letters kind of stand for the Christian life. They're, you know, they're, they're the letters, they're the teaching that we need to understand in order to live the Christian life. Now, we've seen that every one, without exception... Every one of the letters that Paul wrote begins with grace. And it ends with grace. And of course, every verse in between is teaching, ultimately, about God's grace. And can you see there that from beginning to end, and in the middle as well, the Christian life is all about one thing, the grace of God. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's about what he's like, and because he's like the way he is, therefore he has done this. The covenant of grace 
so that we can be saved. So, from beginning to end, grace. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's about his kindness and his friendship. Because that, that's what it's all about. We're here tonight because of God's kindness, because of his friendship. We don't deserve it. We don't merit it in any way at all, but it has quite simply decided, even though they don't deserve it, I'm going to treat them as if they do. And that is what grace is all about. It's when the utterly undeserving are given what they don't deserve as if they do deserve it and it's their right. Because they've earned it. it. You know, that's the grace of God. God's riches at Christ's expense. And just notice that when we went through what Paul wrote there, just notice the things that he linked grace with. All right? Um, we saw that he often linked it with mercy. Often it was grace and mercy. Yeah, and of course, we sin. We break God's law. How does he respond? Legally? No. He responds with mercy. That's how he responds. We saw love linked with love, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So, you've got their mercy, love, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit, fellowship, is relationship, isn't it? Two-way communication. So, there you've got the whole basis of grace. God wants a relationship with us and to be our friend. But the other thing that it was linked with, again and again and again, more than anything else, and indeed nearly every time, is that Paul linked God's grace with peace. It was grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. They're a couplet, because they go together. The one leads to the other. And fundamental to this whole thing, understanding what God's grace is all about, is that God is at peace with you. God is at peace with me. Um, he's not after us. He's not out to get us, or anything like that at all. Go to Romans chapter 5. Verses that Paul wrote there, Romans chapter 5. And we'll do ver verse 1 and 2. He says, therefore... Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So there you have it again. Because of the grace in which we stand, God bestowed it on us, we have peace with him through Jesus. Grace and peace. Now, yes, of course, the Lord, he'll discipline us as children when we need it because he loves us. We saw in the James verse that he'll resist the proud and give grace to the humble. Yeah, the Lord will resist our sin. Of course he will. Part and parcel of sanctifying us because he knows that nothing hurts us so much as our sin. And because of his grace, he wants us to be happy. Therefore, we need to be free. So God will fight in order for us to be free from sin. But the point is, he's not fighting with us personally. God does not have a fight on with you or I because we are Christians. And if you go to Jeremiah, 
Jeremiah and find chapter 29. Jeremiah 29 and uh, verse 11. Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. I'm going to read it in this version I'm trying to get used to and then I'm going to tell you what it should read, all right? <laughs> Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. And we have this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Well, yeah, that gets some way towards it. This is what it should say. For I know my thoughts towards you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not evil to bring you to an expected end. And of course that expected end is to end up in glory with him. Can you see? The Lord's thoughts towards us are of peace. They're not of evil, they're not of antagonism, because he's not after us. His thoughts towards us are peace. The result of being in the covenant of God's grace is that we are at peace with God and he is at peace with us. Now, let's underline this once and for all, okay. Any belief, feeling, or lurking suspicion that God is horrible, or has got it in for you, or is going to get you in some way, all right, is inexcusable paranoia. It is utterly untrue. Yet, how many of us have felt like that at times? But it's an absolute lie. It's paranoia. I mean, the number of years as a Christian, when I had this lurking fear of God in the sense that eventually he'd get me and I'd lose, I'd lose my salvation. Oh, you know, this you know, God with the big stick, like some Victorian you know, sort of like director of the poorhouse or something. You know, like, you know, like, Oliver, please may I have some more? And you get the living daylights beaten out of you. That, that, was, that was part and parcel. That was there in my thinking about God. And it was an absolute lie. It's paranoia. And, and that is Satan putting lies into us. And also it's the willingness of our evil hearts of unbelief to entertain those lies. Think of it like this, in the cold light of day, how is it possible that God could be horrible? We know that he's the God of all grace. We know that God is love. And yet how often, sometimes, do we end up thinking or fearing that God is going to be horrible to us? Almost as if he's some next-door neighbour who's not a very nice bloke. And I'd better not cross him, because one day I'm going to get my comeuppance from him. Can you see how often we think of the Lord in that way? Now, it's blasphemy. It is nothing less than blasphemy. Our estimation of the Lord is very often more fitting to the devil. And I realise this. I realise at a time in my Christian life that some of the fears that I had about God and stuff like that that, it, you know, that, that I was attributing to God what is true of the devil. The devil is the thief. 
The devil is the one who comes to destroy. And yet the times we fear that God is going to get us and almost destroy us and pound us out of existence or something like that, that is a terrible injustice that we do to him. I mean, really, it's blasphemy because that is the exact opposite to what he is actually like. Uh, go back to Romans 5. Uh, and just the verse that once and for all, you know, I mean, like if we go away remembering this verse and believing it, uh, you know, sort of like tonight will have been well worth the bother of, of turning up. Romans chapter 5, and look, verse 6. You see, at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now when we realise again what Jesus did in his grace, he gave up everything so we could have it. He died so that we can live. He became guilty so that he could say we were innocent and blameless. Now, that's not the act of someone who's horrible, is it? And, and there we have it. That is the love that God has. And we, we really need to, you know, to sort of like, to, you know, to repent of, of these decidedly unflattering thoughts we have of the Lord sometimes. But here is his, his love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's his love. How can one have the slightest unflattering thought of the God of all grace, who has done then, you know, done that for us? So all this rubbish in our heads that God's horrible or stuff like that, we must stand against that, that is spiritual warfare. That is Satan deceiving us to keep us out of fellowship with the Lord. And we've got to knock it on the head and utterly, utterly dispel it all because it is lies. It's absolutely untrue. Even if we feel, oh goodness, the sin, it's just, you know, pouring out. I'm in such a mess. We've seen, what is God's answer to that? What, you've got sin oozing out all over you, have you? Right, boldly, you know, approach my throne of grace because I'm going to ooze grace all over you. You know? <laughs> Your sin can ooze all over my throne of grace, but I'm going to beat it because my love is going to ooze all over you. And I'm going to lavish you with it. You know, and if you bring me a bucket of sin, I'm going to hurl you into a swimming pool of my love. See? That's what the throne of grace is all about. And can you see, at the heart of God in his nature and character, as the creator and sustainer of the universe, and lord of everything, what is the fundamental thing in his character as represented by a throne? Is it power? Is it authority? Is it might? Is it dominion? No, it's not. It's grace. Because that is what he is like. So, what we're seeing is that grace, then, is fundamental to the Lord's character. It is the sort of person he is. It must also, therefore, be what, above all else, characterises the life of the Christian. Because if that's what God is like, and if he's put his life in us, then what ought we see, maybe above all else, 
being made manifest through our characters and personalities? Well, the answer is graciousness. We ought to be, above all, gracious people. Christians ought to be the most gracious people on earth. There's that, that Christian book, The Happiest People on Earth. Well, believe you me, if you really bestow grace upon others, there are going to be times when you'll be very unhappy. Because grace suffers. Jesus died on the cross, we could be free. So maybe it oughtn't to be the happiest people on earth, but it should be the most gracious people on earth. That should sum up the church of Jesus Christ. That should sum up you and I and every believer on the face of this earth. We ought to be gracious to each other, and we ought to be gracious to everyone else too. We should be characterised, like it should come out of us, it should be part and parcel of us, it should ooze out of every pore of our skin, almost, you know? Uh, you know, we ought to sweat it, sweat grace, you know? What ought to come out of us the whole time is a friendly disposition to others. You see, a friendly disposition. And out of that friendly mood or disposition towards others will flow kindness and an attitude of favour towards them rather than antagonism. So that the point is, yeah, it's not possible to be friends, for instance, with everyone because there are many people who don't want you to be friends. But where, for instance, friendship isn't viable, it ought to be because they don't want it. We ought to be holding it out. Can you see? That is what being gracious is all about. Or, to put it another way, in the terms that we've seen in this series, we can pass on grace to those around us, or we can pass on law. You see what I mean? In our characters, we can pass grace around, or we can pass law around. We can dish out to people what we think they deserve, law, or we can relate to people on the same basis that the Lord relates to us, grace. Go to John, John's Gospel in chapter 1. John's Gospel and chapter 1, and um, First of all, verse 14, then 16 and 17. The Word, Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now go to 16. From the fullness of his grace, we have received one blessing after another, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, as you remember, we saw in one of the earlier studies in this, the way that the Old Testament was a, a kind of a living allegory of the New Testament, or the Old Covenant was a historical allegory of the New Covenant, and that everything there are types and pictures and allegories, blah, blah, blah. And do you remember that one of the things we saw is that it wasn't Moses who got Israel into the Promised Land, was it? See, Moses represented the law. But it was Joshua 
who eventually led the people into the promised land or into the fullness of life in Christ because that's what Canaan represents, alright. Um, and Joshua, of course, is the Hebrew name for Jesus. So we saw, didn't we, that Moses, representing the law, yeah, convict of sin, get you saved, blah, 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 all very well and good, but Moses can't lead you into the promised land because the Christian law isn't on the, you know, the Christian life isn't law, it's grace. That was Joshua, it was Jesus. Now, I want to go into this a little bit more. Keep your finger in John 1, but now go to Numbers. Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And find chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. Right, now let's read from verse 2. I'm going to read quickly because we're running out of time. All right? Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. Get used to that if you're a leader. All right? They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. It's a bit of a daft thing to say, but this, that's, that's what moaning does, doesn't it? You know, saying, wish we were dead. <coughs> a bit daft. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? There's no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. That's what they're saying. You know, it's that tone of voice. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff which represented their authority, all right? Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before their eyes, and I will pour out its water. Now, notice that. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and I will pour out water. So, what's this? The people are moan, 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 moan. So what does God do? He's like, all right, I'll let them have it. No, he says, I'll, I'll give them what they want, water. So it's grace, all right? Speak to the rock, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honour me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Now, what you've got there is that God is demonstrating his grace to Israel. That's what he wanted to do, demonstrate his grace. What does Moses do? And Aaron is in cahoots. He loses his temper. You rebels! Must we bring, you know, he's, you know, he's flown off the handle. And he strikes the rock, getting dramatic. See what I mean? And God said, right, you're not going to lead the people in. You see? Because the point is, Moses, as God's leader of Israel, he misrepresented God. At the very moment when God wanted to demonstrate his grace, Moses came in with the, the kind of the pastoral strops. And he flies at the people. And he totally misrepresents God. And God said, okay, you're not going to go into the promised land. Now, can you see, he misinterpreted the Lord. He misrepresented the Lord. It was intolerant impatience. And that is the opposite of grace. 
And my goodness, hadn't Moses forgotten that he was a sinner as well? You rebels. When the, the, very, the very words he said, you rebels, was his own rebellion. You see? But that's what legalism does, you know. We saw it in the Pharisees. Legalism is self-righteous. It's forgotten how sinful it is. Can you see? Moses here, he ministered law, but he didn't minister grace. And that is the choice that you and I can do. He gave the people what they deserved. Whereas God was giving them what they didn't deserve because he was full of grace. Now, can you see what I mean? We can pass on grace or law. We can do a Moses or we can do a Jesus. It's up to us. It's our choice what we're going to pass on to others. Uh, go to 1 Peter, chapter 4. I said stick your hand in John 1, but don't worry, let it go now. I'll just refer to it again later. But 1 Peter chapter 4, let's, you know, let's, let, let's see how this grace pans out in, in action. You know, kind of like what sort of people we ought to be. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. And what all, all these verses have in common is that they're all tied up with grace quite, quite explicitly. Um, 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. Now look what he says. Each one of us should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So, how do you administer God's grace? You serve others. And how do you administer God's grace in its various forms? Well, you give people what they need at the time. Do you see? Because different people have different needs. So there's a whole variety of ways we can minister God's grace. You see? That's great. But that's what it means. Serving each other. Meeting other people's needs. Go to Colossians. Important aspects here. Colossians. Because remember, we can treat people badly, or we can treat them well. But grace treats them well. Colossians 4, verse 6. Let your conversation or speech be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let our speech be full of grace. Grace means guarding our lips. O oh Lord, put a guard on my lips. And seasoned with salt, because salt in the ancient world was a preservative. It, it kind of stopped the bad happening. Now, there are times when without our tongues, we can latch onto a bit of bad and we can make the bad grow, can't we? But our speech ought to be gracious, seasoned with salt. Our speech ought to stop the bad, if we can. Might not be able to, but my goodness, we're going to try. You see, gracious speech, seasoned with salt, a preservative. Not adding to the bad, but chucking the good in there. Building people up, not tearing them down. Never trying to humiliate people, never trying to destroy them with words. Because in James it says life and death is in the power of the tongue. Well, grace ministers life, but law ministers death. Ungracious speaking. We need to make sure we don't. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, another aspect of what grace is all about. Because if we want to be gracious, these are all kind of the things we've got to take on. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
Right, verse 6, 7 and then 9. Right. Um, so we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 there is giving. And in that instance, the Corinthian church giving to other churches that were much poorer than them. So, the act of grace, giving, that's been gracious. It's self-denial, isn't it? Unbelievable. You know, that's the practical outworking of a gracious character. So, it's no use just being nice and friendly, a nice guy. Yeah, we got it, you know, we're going to be nice guys, aren't we? If we're gracious, we're going to be nice. But it's no use just being nice on the show. There's got a bit of practical action there. You know, yeah, I mean, Judas was acting Mr. Nice Guy when he kissed Jesus, wasn't he? But it was the act of betraying him. Because Judas, the fruit of his life, wasn't there to back up his outward graciousness. So these practical things have got to be there. Um, go to 2 Corinthians 6, uh, sorry, chapter 3. So back, back three chapters. And I uh, just want to read verse 6. We saw these verses in earlier talk. But look, Paul says, He has made us, I God, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. See, grace. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And the letter there that kills is the law. It's legalism. But the Spirit, the covenant of grace, gives life. And if we're gracious people, then... Our ministry, amongst others, we will minister life. And people will grow in the Lord through their contact with us. But if we minister law, if we're ungracious, pharisaical or whatever, if we minister law, we're going to screw people up because we're misrepresenting God. And it's the choice that we have to make. Okay. And, uh, I mean, if, if you really want to know what, graciousness is in its fullness and we haven't got time you know to go through it as I planned but you know sort of do it yourself sometime 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 7 the famous chapter love is read those verses that's what grace is I mean love is simply grace outworked in every way um, and in Galatians 5 verse 22 the fruit of the spirit put those together and that is what you know graciousness is all about and uh, but, but but just very quickly with the fruit of the spirit just just go there galatians 5 because there's just one thing i want to we can't do it in detail but there's one thing i do want to bring out because it's important galatians chapter 5 and um verse 22 and 23 you get but the fruit of the spirit is blah 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 and then what you get at the end of verse 23 is Paul says against such things there is no law. Now why isn't there any law against them? Well firstly because you can do them as much as you like and you're not going to get into trouble. <laughs> you see like, that's the first thing. God says you can do all that as much as you like. Love, joy, peace, all, all you want. 
patience, kindness, go for it, all you like. I'll never tell you off. I'll never say you're taking this too far. So that's the first reason that against the fruit of the Spirit there is no law. But there's another reason. Why is there no law against it? Because law is the opposite of grace, and this is grace. The fruit of the Spirit is grace, not law. So Paul says there's no law against it. You see? Because this isn't law, this is grace. And it's up to us, we can be the fruit of the Spirit and minister life, or we can be legalistic, hypocritical, or whatever, and minister death. Now, the, do you remember uh, in John 1, earlier, we saw the thing that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. So there we have the big contrast between law and grace. But we just want to very quickly home in on the fact that there, it doesn't just say that the law came through Moses and grace came through Jesus. It doesn't just say that. It says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Now, why does truth have to go with grace? This is important, all right? We've certainly noticed that truth without grace is no good, haven't we? If you've got the truth without grace, that's, that's daft, all right? Because you can have the truth, but without grace, you're just back into legalism again, all right? But truth is always linked in with grace. And the reason is because we must emphasize that if you have grace out of the context of truth, then, again, it leads to the error of license. You see what I mean? If you try to have grace divorced from truth, then uh, you're, you're kind of into, well, do what you like. Just love them, as it were. And grace must always go with truth. So here's a little, you know, sum here. If truth without grace equals legalism, if you've got the truth but no grace, that's legalism, all right, then grace without truth equals license. You see, it's the balance. And many Christians, and you'll get this so far and wide, that many Christians, whenever they start talking about love or grace, blah, 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 they end up with some namby-pamby, anything-goes-just-love-em kind of a thing. Um, and that's wrong. That's wrong. Grace, everything we've seen, and I stand by every word I've said, but it doesn't mean watering down the truth. It doesn't mean leaving everybody free to do what they like unchallenged. Of course it doesn't mean that at all. Go to Acts chapter 6. I want to show you this is important, Acts chapter 6, because again it's balance here. Acts chapter 6, and we'll see the, the, the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr here. Acts chapter 6, and um, verse 8, and it says, Now Stephen a man full of God's grace. Now, how about that? Full of God's grace. So here we have a statement about Stephen. He was full of grace. So you couldn't have a human being being any more gracious than he was. He was full of grace. Okay? But, um, go to chapter 7 and verse 51. Now let's see the end of his sermon to the Sanhedrin. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute? 
They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. And then it says that they were furious and gnashed their teeth against him. Why? Because the truth he spoke so offended and upset them. But Stephen was not being ungracious. You see what I mean? We mustn't think that graciousness won't speak the truth. It will. But graciousness is that loving and respectful attitude in which you do it. This is the important thing. We don't want to end up with some namby-pamby, anything-goes stuff, because that's, that's crazy. I mean, the hard sayings of Jesus. You know, go tell that fox Herod. Or hypocrites. John the Baptist, brood of vipers. You know, Paul, I wish they go all the way and emasculate themselves. But these were not people being ungracious. It was the force of the truth. That is not ungraciousness. It's only ungracious if you're using hard truth to demean people or get them go for them personally. That is ungraciousness. But, but, but taking a tough line on the truth is not ungracious. The motive must be grace. Compassionate. Merciful. But it doesn't mean that one actually holds back on the truth and, you know, sort of throws, throws the whole thing out of the window. That, that, isn't, that isn't the case. And uh, if you go to Ephesians 4, you just see a couple of verses now that get the balance. In Ephesians 4 and verse 15, Paul says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up into Christ. You see, speaking the truth in love. So, lo truth and grace, they always go together. Um, go to Colossians. Colossians, chapter 1 and the second half of verse 6. And he says, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You see? So grace must always be linked with truth. Otherwise, if it's not linked with the truth and challenge of God's word, it's just going to end up into license. One of the errors that we um, have to make sure that we really avoid. Right, okay, so grace. It's what we must be seeking more and more. Um, the grace-filled Christian life. That, that really is what growing in the Lord is all about. That is what sanctification is all about. Um, just end with a few verses uh, that you know, are important here. Go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Because you see, the thing is, we can fail to seek it. See? Hebrews 12, verse 14. He says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men you see grace and peace you see favor peace and to be holy without holiness no one will see the lord oh, thank you lord we've got jesus's holiness imputed to us but here he's saying let it out don't just have it credited to you live it out let it come out live it out with people and look see to it that no one misses the grace of god and he's talking to christians here and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See, you can get bitterness in your heart, sin in our heart that we won't let go of. He says, look, don't miss the grace of God. We can. That's the point. You can have Christians, and there are Christians, 
no grace about them, doesn't come into it. It's tragic, they miss the grace of God, because they're not yearning, they're not going after the grace of God in their lives. Can you see? They're rather into sin, and that cuts us off from God's grace being revealed in our lives. So look, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Go, go back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, find chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Because, I mean, the point is God's grace has been poured out on us. It's there. Jesus, he, he lives in us. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But all that can be in vain. Because if we don't work out our own salvation, if we don't work out what God has worked in, what use is it? We've received God's grace, we're saved. But unless we laid all that out to others, see, we can be selfish. We can live the carnal Christian life or the grace-filled Christian life. So, there's the warning. We can receive God's grace in vain. Maybe some of us here, I, I don't know. How tragic, though, to have received God's grace in vain. Go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Chapter 3, and verse 18, and he says this, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. You see, grace and truth, they're knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge. That's what we've got to do. We've got to grow in grace. It's down to us. Oh, the Lord's got everything there that's needed, but it's ultimately down to us. We can resist it, we can receive it in vain, we can miss it. It's down to us. We're commanded to grow in grace. If we do, what will we expect more and more to see our lives becoming? Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If we grow in grace, what will we expect? What are going to be the signs of it, eh? Hey? Ephesians 4, find verse 29. Know what Paul says here. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. You see, there's the old, let your speech be full of grace, seasoned with salt. According to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So even every word we speak, let it be serving people, helping them. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed in the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Go to Colossians. That's what, that's what we're going to become more and more, if we grow in grace. If we don't grow in grace, we won't be that more and more, and if we receive the grace of God totally in vain, we'll be the opposite of that. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other 
and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. If you sin against me, what am I going to give you? A bucket of venom or a bath of grace? I've got to give you grace, haven't I? doesn't mean I can't correct you. No, but there's a difference, isn't there? And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Now that is more and more what we're going to be turning into if we grow in grace. And that's the choice before us. We've done a series on law and grace. We've discovered that a covenant of grace has saved us. We're not under law, we're under grace. We're saved. Boom. We're home dry because Jesus is our saviour. But wouldn't it be awful, maybe even despicable, if, having received the grace of God ourselves, so that we're home dry, eternity-wise, wouldn't it be despicable if we then decide that us, being not under law but grace, when we relate to other people, we put them under law rather than grace? With us and God, I'm under grace. But when you relate to me, you're under law. Now, that, that is despicable, isn't it? having received the grace and the love of God, that we should then treat others ungraciously and unlovingly. You see? And that is, that is the choice that we have to make. And it's a tough choice. And you might think, oh, how is it possible? Well, it's possible because that's what Jesus is like and he lives in us. And do you remember when Paul, his thorn in the flesh, and he cried out three times, take it away, this is too hard, I can't begin to imagine. What did God say to him? He said, look, my grace is sufficient. I, I have given you and I will give you everything you need in order for it to be okay. You think you can't endure it, you can. My grace is sufficient. And Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In exactly the same way, if being gracious seems, oh, it's too much of a tall order, the point is God's grace is sufficient. He is the one who will empower us if we truly set our minds and our hearts on this thing and say, Lord, I don't rate myself very highly in this department, but Lord, I want to be gracious. Do it in me, even if it kills me. I'm not going to rest until your grace is flowing out of me to other people. So there you go. We're not under law, we're under grace. And ought therefore to be living the grace-filled Christian life. And that is definitely the last study in the Law and Grace series. So we'll finish there.